Amen. Let's go ahead and get our Bibles out. Turning once again to the book of John. We're in John chapter 4 this week. And what an amazing text of Scripture it is. When we were in John chapter 3, the star of the show was Nicodemus. You you remember him. He came to Jesus in the night and said, okay, we believe. You're the one. You're the guy. You're from God. Nicodemus was a man, so he was educated in the ancient Near East. He was also a Pharisee. He was a leader of the Jews. He was well-respected. He had power and prestige. He was a leader. The star of John chapter 4 could not be any more different than Nicodemus, the woman at the well. A woman in the ancient Near East, uneducated. Not only uneducated, but an outcast of society, a Samaritan. So an outcast among the Jews, but even amongst her own people, the Samaritans an outcast because of the life of sexual sin. There could not be a greater contrast between John chapter 3 and John chapter 4 than the contrast between Nicodemus and the woman at the well. And yet, through her, the gospel goes out to Samaria and many are saved. We're going to see how that happens. Let me pray and then we'll dive into the text. Father, we come before you this morning with humble hearts. And if our hearts are not as humble as they should be, humble us now, Lord. Help us to recognize that we can do nothing apart from you and your spirit applying your word to our lives. If we're distracted, help us to focus. If we're frustrated, help us to find relief even now. Apply the the gospel balm to our hearts so that we can listen to your word and receive from your hand all that we need for life and godliness. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. We have a lot of verses to cover this morning. We're going to be going from John chapter 4, verse 1, all the way to verse 42. And we're just going to be going line by line. I know this is not typically the way we do it, but that's the way we're going to do it this morning. So keep your Bibles open and just be prepared to walk through God's word together with me. Let's start in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So, here we see that Jesus makes a decision to move from one city to another, one location to another, based on the hubbub that's surrounding his ministry. You remember what we saw in John chapter 3? The disciples of John the Baptist had heard that Jesus' ministry was growing and expanding and becoming ever more fruitful. And so they were nervous about it. They went to John the Baptist and said, oh, John, aren't you afraid of Jesus and what's happening with his ministry? And you're John the Baptist, and he seems to be baptizing as many, if not more people than you. And John said, no, I'm not really concerned about that because, you know, he's the Messiah, so this is a good thing. But this morning we see that not only have John the Baptist's disciples heard about Jesus' growing ministry, but also the Pharisees had heard about it. And, you know, the Pharisees, they're not super on board with Jesus. They are not really excited about what's happening with him. He's making them nervous. They probably still remember him cleansing the temple And they're probably not too happy about the fact that Jesus' ministry just continues to grow and grow and grow and more Jews are repenting and believing and that means that their power is diminishing and their popularity is diminishing. And so Jesus wisely makes a calculated decision in light of what is probably increasing hostility from the Pharisees to leave the region where he is, which is Judea, and to depart again for Galilee. Remember, if you were to look at a map, Judea is in the south, Galilee is up further north. Look at verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. So this had to language is interesting. There are two senses, I think, 
in which John is saying this, in which the Spirit has inspired John to say this. The first sense is that uh, geographically, he just had to pass through Samaria. So if you were to look at a map, you would see that Judea is in the south and Galilee is in the north, and Samaria is right there in the middle. So in order for Jesus to make this trip from the south to the north, he literally had to pass through this region. But just like a lot of the language with John's gospel, there seems to be another deeper sense in which Jesus had to. This seems to be throughout the rest of the gospel of John, the language of a divine imperative. It seems to be the language of Jesus doing that which the Father is moving him to do. Jesus has to go to the cross and suffer. Jesus must die and rise again for the sake of the people. And that language seems to be what is being employed here with Jesus because he didn't literally have to go through Samaria. It was not uncommon for many Jews, and we'll talk about why here in a minute, to bypass Samaria, to go through the Decapolis up and around to get to Galilee. So there's one sense in which he had to. There's another sense in which he could have bypassed it. Well, why did he choose to go through Samaria? Well, I think what we're going to see this morning is because God had a purpose for Jesus there in that land. Now, why is it so significant that Jesus had to go to Samaria? Why is it so significant? Why would the Father want him to go through there at all? To us, we read names and places in the Bible, and they may not immediately stand out, stand out to us as significant, but the land of Samaria was very significant for the Jews. Uh, we read a little bit about it this morning in, in, in the scripture, which our sister Jenny read so well for us. Jeez, goodness gracious. I don't know if like, you can apply for a job at Audible, uh, but if you can, like, I want you to read all the books that I'm listening to right now. But there, it told us the story about Samaria and how it came to be. Let's, let's kind of rehash that history a little, okay? We remember that the nation of Israel used to be 12 tribes, kind of one consolidated piece of land, the promised land. And then there was a civil war and there became 10 tribes in the north and two tribes in the south. And the 10 tribes in the north, they had a capital city there, Samaria. And so that whole upper northern region became known as the region of Samaria. And the north and the south, they weren't on the best of terms, but they still considered themselves brothers in the Lord. And until one day, the nation of Assyria, used as an instrument in the, in the hand of God, came crashing down on the ten northern tribes. The nation of Assyria came with its armies and utterly destroyed the ten northern tribes, wiped them off the map, carried many of them away into slavery, and left the land in desolation and ruins. But then they did what people tended to do back then. They, they repopulated the land. They brought people in from this place and that place, and all the people that they brought into this holy land, they were pagans. And there were some Jews left in Samaria. And so what you see happening, what we read about in, in our scripture reading this morning, is that the pagans and the Jews began to intermingle. They began to intermarry. Their worship became intertwined, and God is not pleased with that. It was a very bad thing. It's syncretism, trying to mix the worship of Yahweh with the worship of other pagan gods. And that, you know, is not a good thing. And, and some of the Jews in the land, they weren't happy about this, so they went to the king of Assyria, and they complained, hey, we're Jews, and we're trying to be here in the holy land and be holy, but all these pagans in our midst are making it impossible. And so the Assyrian king says, oh, I, I hear you. Don't worry. I, I'm going to send a priest back in, and he's going to help you guys fix this. And the priest comes in, and he, he fixes nothing. <laughs> he doesn't help at all. It only makes things worse. And so we see just generation after generation of syncretism and of false, impure, blemished, unholy worship growing up amongst the Samaritans. And so the Jews begin to despise them. And then when you're despised, what do you do? You despise those who despise you in return. And so there is enmity and strife, ethnic, political, social, cultural, between the Jews and the Samaritans. Now, by the time we get to Jesus' day, the geography has shifted a little. I don't really understand how all of that happened. I'm not a geographer. Eh? That's probably not the right word. But, uh, but, but basically, uh, instead of just being all bad Samaria area up here, it became Judea, Samaria in the middle, and then Galilee with Jews and them doing the right thing up top. 
And so when we say that Jesus had to pass through there, that's what we're talking about. So that's the scenario. It's a really big deal that Jesus would pass through Samaria. So many Jews would not go through Samaria because they were worried about becoming unclean. Ooh, maybe I would come into contact with something that would lead me to become unholy. Jesus is utterly unconcerned with that because we know that Jesus, being God in the flesh, cannot be made unholy. When he comes into contact with that which is unclean, he does not become unclean. The unclean thing becomes clean. So Jesus comes into contact with a leper, and he's not worried about that. He's not worried about getting leprosy. The leper is healed. And so Jesus is willing to pass through Samaria. Now, verse 5 continues. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. So this is in reference to Jacob, the, the patriarch. He gave some land to his son Joseph, right? And Jacob was buried there in that land. We continue, verse 6. Jacob's well was there. What's the deal with Jacob's well? Well, we don't really know exactly, like, like did Jacob himself build it? The, the Bible doesn't say, was it built, was it dug, and then, like, dedicated to Jacob? We don't know. But we know that it was a good well, uh, it was a well that was dug down very deep to the point where it got to running water, however that works. I don't know. Somebody can come correct me about this afterwards. But to the point where it got down to fresh, good running water, and it had supplied Jacob and his family and his livestock and then their ancestors for generation after generation for hundreds of years. This is Jacob's well. We continue in verse 6. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour, uh, it, it's probably about noon. It's the sixth hour from the beginning of sunrise, okay? So what we see here is that Jesus is fully human. You know, he's on a three days journey. He's probably about one day into that three days journey. And he is road weary. He is exhausted. He, the sun of the ancient Near East is bearing down on him. And so he shows up at the well and he is just exhausted. And so he sits down next to it. Here's where things get interesting. Verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So Jesus is hanging out by the well. You know, they need food. He sends his disciples away. But who's going to get the water? They didn't bring a thing with them to draw water from the well. They didn't bring their own jar, their own vessel. Jesus is thirsty. And here comes this woman from Samaria, a local, someone who is unclean, basically pagan. And Jesus interacts with her. You're like, yeah, big deal, right? But imagine, just imagine that you're a Jew and you're reading this, okay? Just you're, imagine you're in the first century and a Samaritan woman walks up and not only is Jesus in the same physical proximity as her, but he even says, give me some water. You would have been shocked. You would have been mortified. You would have been taken aback. It, you would, just would have been aghast. And the woman understands exactly how dramatic this situation is. Look at verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John adds the parenthetical comment in case his readers don't understand what's happening here. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, that no dealings, it could also be translated as like they don't partake of the same utensils. Either way, the point is the same. Jesus knows, and the woman at the well knows, that Jews do not partake in any meaningful way of anything having to do with anyone from Samaria. And here Jesus is saying, hey, can you use your bucket to pull up some water for me so I can have a drink? It is utterly unheard of. Jesus responds to her, verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, there, there's a couple things going on here that may not be immediately clear. Okay, so the first thing is, Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God, 
Well, what is he talking about there? Well, the gift of God amongst first century Jews, that was the way that they talked about the Bible, okay? Their Old Testament. And what you see here is Jesus has actually taken a jab at this Samaritan woman. So one thing that you should know about the Samaritans is they did not accept the full Old Testament as the Bible. They only believed in the first five books, the Pentateuch. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Boom, still got it. <laughs> they only believed in the first five books of the Bible. And so there's, there's a sense in which Jesus is saying, listen, if you knew the word, and he doesn't mean if you, if you had more of the Bible memorized, right? You know, getting your jewels and your Awana crown. That's not what he means. He means like if you really knew the word, if you read all of the word and really understood the word, if you understood how God has been communicating the drama of redemption and the promises of salvation, if you knew that, then you wouldn't be shocked that I was asking you a question. You would be asking me a question. Now, what is the question that she would have asked if she understood the word as she was supposed to? Well, she would be asking Jesus for living water. What is living water? I mean, as we're going to continue, we're going to see here in a minute, the, the woman listening to Jesus doesn't perceive him to be saying anything spiritual. She's, she, begins to just, she continues just to have a conversation about regular water. Why? Well, it's because living water is a colloquialism. It's just, it's a way to refer to water that runs through a spring, you know. In the ancient Near East, there were basically two ways you, you got water. One was you know, you would dig out a massive cistern in the ground and then you would bring water and put it in there and so you would go draw water from the cistern. That's still water. You can see how that's not living water. It doesn't run, it doesn't move, it doesn't have life. But then there's water from a stream or from a really good well, like Jacob's well. That would be called living water. So Jesus goes, if you knew the Bible, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for living water, from stream water. And the woman is oblivious to what Jesus is saying. Verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. This well is deep. Where do you get that living water? So what she's saying is, listen, as far as I know, in this dry, arid land, the only living water available is right here at Jacob's well. So if you say that you can give me living water, where are you getting it from? Because as far as I can tell, you don't have a bucket, and this is the only water source around. Verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And here we see what we see often in the book of John, people saying things or asking things that are profoundly deep in a way that they cannot even begin to understand. She asked J Jesus, are you greater than Jacob? And the answer is, of course. Jesus is the one that Jacob was pointing to. Jesus is the one that Jacob's well was pointing to. But we, we never really answer the question, what is it, when Jesus is offering her, offering her living water, she thinks he's talking about groundwater, but what is he talking about? Well, let's turn to John chapter 7 and just let him explain that to us. John chapter 7, verse 38. We can actually start midway. <clears throat> yeah, we'll just start at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, doesn't that draw you back to what he just said to this woman at the well, right? It's in the Bible. God has already told you this. Out of the heart will flow rivers of living water. Verse 39. Now this he said about the spirit. So what is this living water that Jesus is referring to when he's talking to the woman at the well? What is this living water that he has to offer her? It's his spirit we're going to explore that more here in a moment. But she asks, are you greater than our father Jacob, right? He gave us the well. He gave us this good water. How can you possibly say that you're greater than him? Well, because what Jesus gives is greater than what Jacob gave. He gives the true water, the living water, 
The water that if you partake of it, you will never thirst again. And that's what we see in the very next verse. Jesus said to her, verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Can't you see how the idea of water and thirst, this concept, relates perfectly to what Jesus is offering with his spirit, right? I mean, just think about it. You take a sip, even as I'm communicating to you, you know, I take a sip of water and I'm like, good, okay, my throat was parched, now it's better. But then you'll notice that in like five or 10 minutes as I just ramble on up here, I'm gonna partake of another sip of water because it's not enough, it's never enough. You can fill your gut all the way up with water right now. And guess what? You're going to need some more water later tonight or tomorrow or the next day. And what we see here with this woman at the well is that her spirit is thirsty in a way that she can't even begin to understand. And Jesus says, you're thirsty and you don't even know it. And I have something that I can give you where if you partake of even the tiniest, eensiest, teensiest bit of it, if you take the smallest sip of what I have to offer you, you will never be spiritually thirsty again. Why? Because what I offer you will become a well within you. Instead of having to go back and visit the well, I'm going to give you a water that will turn your body, your soul into a well. And we understand that, right? Because of the Holy Spirit. We saw last week and the week before that the Spirit is eternal. The Father has been loving the Son and giving the Son the gift of the Spirit for all of eternity. The Spirit has coexisted with the Father and Son since eternity's past and He will exist forever and ever. And so when you get just a little bit of the Spirit in you, that eternality is reproduced in your soul. And Jesus says, if you only knew, if you only knew the promises that God has made in his word about the Messiah who will come and give you the spirit so that you will never have to thirst again. If you only knew that, you would look at me and you wouldn't be worried about ceremonialism and being clean or unclean. You would just get down on your knees and you would beg and you would cry out, give me your water. Verse 15. The woman said to him, sir, Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And we see the woman doesn't understand still what Jesus is saying. You can't blame her because Jesus hasn't really tipped his hand yet. But don't you notice this theme? Don't you remember the Pharisees misunderstanding Jesus when he said, you know, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it again in three days. And they thought he was literally talking about the temple instead of his body. And don't you remember with Nicodemus, Jesus said, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, born again? He's trying to figure out how that would work, right? Physically, the anatomy of it all. And and he didn't understand that Jesus was talking about spiritual birth. And here Jesus is talking with the woman at the well about water, and she does not understand that he's actually talking about his spirit. So she says, okay, listen, tell me where this water is. I don't like coming to the well. I don't want to have to do this. You should know that this experience for this woman at the well is probably even more painful than just the normal drudgery of having to go to the well. What we saw at the beginning of this chapter is that the woman was at the well at noonday, at the sixth hour. In that part of the world, in that culture, women didn't go to the well at noonday. They went at the very beginning of the day before the sun would rise and they had to deal with the heat. They would get enough water for all the chores of the day. Or they would go later in the evening, again, when the sun wasn't bearing down on them. Maybe if they didn't get all the water they needed at the beginning of the day, they would get a little bit more water at the end of the day. But they would always go in the morning or the evening, and they would never go alone. For the sake of protection, they would always go with a couple people, right? Other women, most likely. And so what we see here is that this woman is alone, and she's there at noon, which means that she probably can't get anyone to go with her and she's probably an outcast of society. She wants to go there at a time when she doesn't have to deal with anyone, when she doesn't have to see anyone. Well, why is that the case? Why does she not want to be seen 
or see. Why is she alone? Well, that's what we find out in verse 16. And isn't this, isn't this so interesting? You would expect that this would be the spot where Jesus is like, man, if you only knew the Bible, I'd give you living water. And she's like, okay, like I want this living water. And he would be like, and by the way, living water is the spirit of God and I'm the Messiah. And you would expect that this would be the big climax. But not yet. Jesus first has to reveal to her just how thirsty she really is. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Verse 17, the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus responded to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one that you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And this is another little dig from Jesus, because what she said is, is true, even though she basically tried to lie to Jesus. What we see here is that the woman is at the well alone because even amongst the Samaritans who were themselves outcasts, she is a social pariah because of her sexual sin. You can't be in the small town of Sakar, Samaria, in the ancient Near East, married five times and divorced five times and then living with someone else out of wedlock without it being known, without being judged. And so this woman is so thirsty and she has been trying to satisfy her thirst with men her soul has been parched and she's been looking to men and to marriage as the answer right and who knows what what aspect of it of of her relationship with men in particular that she felt like would be the answer maybe it was the sex maybe that's what she felt like would would make her whole again would heal her, would, would quench her thirst. Maybe it was just the companionship. Maybe she just couldn't bear to be alone. We don't know, but we know that she was thirsty and that every time she would take a sip, she would be unsatisfied and unsatisfied and unsatisfied. And even now, Jesus says, you're unsatisfied. Who knows after this contact with Jesus if the sixth man would not have been the last man. The application from here writes itself. We can try to find our comfort and satisfaction in all the wrong things. We can try to quench our thirst in sex, which is a good gift from God, but when used inappropriately, will only leave us more thirsty than when we first began, like drinking salt water. We can find our satisfaction in relationships. You know, thinking if, if only I could be in this circle with those people, if only I could be friends with that person, if only I could have this status, then everything would be better. And then the higher we climb or the deeper into the relational circle we go, we find that we're still just unsatisfied. And we keep pushing and we keep striving and we try to find our satisfaction in our looks, in our fitness, in our education, in our money. And the deeper we go, the more we cling the less satisfied we are. Verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> Understatement of the year, right? Jesus has been talking to this woman for five minutes and he's like, hey, let me tell you like the most embarrassing thing, <laughs> like the most horrendously scandalous thing about your life that you would never tell me in a million years. And she goes, oh, I can perceive it. Verse 20. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, there's one of two things that's happening here. What, what, what this woman does is she brings up a theological question. So another thing that you should know about the Samaritans is that they had their own temple. The Jews, because God commanded it, put their temple in Jerusalem on the mount there. The Gentiles, uh, excuse me, the Samaritans, because they didn't believe that part of the Bible, rejected that. They said, ah, we don't think God said to put a temple there, but we want to have a temple, which is an interesting, we won't parse that out right now, but they said, we want a temple and we're going to put it on Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim was a place where some of the patriarchs would pronounce blessings over the people of God, so they had their theological reasons for doing that. 
And they said, we're going to have our own temple in our own land on our own mountain. And so she raises this issue with Jesus. She says, ah, well, since you're a prophet, let me bring up this theological question. So what's happening here? Well, again, one or two things. One of two things. One, she could be just genuinely curious and like, okay, you're a prophet. I'm in the midst of a prophet. You obviously come from God. You have answers from God. Let me ask you this question because I kind of want to know the answer. That's the most charitable reading. I can imagine a scenario where like me, a pastor, I'm on the plane with someone, ignoring them and trying to read my book instead of evangelizing them. But then God is kind and we have a conversation and, you know, what do you do, Frank? You know, oh, you work, you're an engineer going to Huntsville, right? He's an engineer. And then Frank says, what are you? I'm a pastor. And then he goes, oh, I'm a Christian. I'm a, oh, great. What church do you go to? And he tells me, and it's probably not a healthy church. And then we have this conversation. And then he goes, you know, I've heard about your church. You guys are Calvinists, right? And I'm like, oh, we don't like that term, but Okay. <laughs> And then he would say, you know, I've been, I've been wondering, somebody sent me an article about that and I read in my Bible recently about predestination and election and I'm really curious and I tried to ask my small group leader about it and he got sweaty and nervous and changed the subject and then I wrote my pastor an email about it and he never wrote me back and so now I'm reading this book and I'm just so confused and well, you're a pastor and while I have you here, why don't you just settle this really theologically thorny question that I have? That could be kind of what's happening here. Or, maybe a less charitable reading, is that the woman is doing what we can all so easily do. Avoid the difficult conversations by bringing up theology. Jesus finds her in her sin and puts his finger right on her idolatry. And that's really uncomfortable for her, so she immediately changes the subject. What do you think about this whole temple debate, huh? Who's right? Who's wrong? Let's talk about that. It's so easy to do that. It's one of my fears for this church. You know, we're the doctrine people. And when we get together, we'd rather talk about creeds and confessions or this latest internet hubbub and theological controversy rather than talking about sanctification in our own lives. Rather than talking about love and grace and fellowship in our own community rather than confessing sins to one another, when we get together, instead of asking, hey, how's your marriage doing? And then giving an honest answer and having a hard conversation, we get together and go, hey, did you see what this guy tweeted about that guy? What do you think about that? I hope that that is not how we are conducting ourselves, brothers and sisters. And I hope that that's not what she was doing. But we we don't know. We don't know why she asked that. But she asked. And so Jesus gives her a response. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, which, by the way, sorry, the way that I read that, <laughs> that's probably not how it sounded. It's probably just a more polite, like, uh, ma'am, you know, kind of a thing. <laughs> Woman, uh, ma'am, uh, believe me. So listen, whenever Jesus says something like that, like, believe me, it's time to lock in, okay? He's saying something pretty significant. Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now, we're going to come back to that. Verse 22. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Now Jesus does two things here in his response to the Samaritan woman and her theological question. The first thing he does is tell her that she's wrong. We're going to see here in a bit that Jesus says that the Father wants to be worshipped in spirit and truth. And we often view those two things in competition but they're not in competition. One of the roles of the Spirit in our lives is to lead us into all truth. Now, this Samaritan woman has been worshiping God unlawfully in a way that his word has not commanded, and Jesus tells her that. He says, listen, you worship what you don't understand. You're worshiping in ignorance. We are worshiping what we know to be true because God has revealed it to us in his word. Brothers and sisters, I hope that that typifies the conversations that we have with people in our evangelism. Even when we are being sympathetic and compassionate, even when we are trying to offer them the living water of Jesus Christ and we're trying to 
to, to poke them in their, in their hearts and get them to, to talk to us and engage with us. We can't do so in a way that compromises truth. We have to tell them, no, you're worshiping a false god or you're worshiping God in a false way. But then Jesus does something else. He says, you're wrong, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter now. Because the day is coming when this temple or that temple is a theological question that no one will continue to have. It's a discussion that no one will be engaging in. Let's keep going and see, see why. What's Jesus' rationale? Verse 23. But the hour is coming. And remember, hour just means the time. So the time is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So uh, when he says the Father is seeking people to worship him, he doesn't literally mean like Jesus is out there like, you know, the Father sent Jesus to be like, hey guys, you know, God, he needs your worship. You know, are, are you up for it? Do you think you could spare some worship for God? No, he means God is seeking and that he sent his son to accomplish this purpose. To, to bring people into the fullness of worship. God sent his son to draw people to the Father to worship him in spirit and truth. But what does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? Well, before we get to that, verse 24. This is Jesus' rationale. He says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. What is Jesus' argument there? God is spirit, therefore those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Something about the nature of who God is, that he is spirit, means that the way that we worship him must, it means that we must worship him in spirit. What does that mean? Well, remember the context here. The question of worship is a question that this woman has raised with Jesus. And the question is not a question of the spiritual, but of the physical. It's a question of the material. This mountain or that mountain? This temple or that temple? And Jesus is saying, listen, there was a time when these material aspects of worship were more relevant, but now that I'm here, because the Father sent me, none of that matters. The material questions of worship do not matter because I came to bring people into the fullness of worship in spirit because God is spirit. And so... That's an answer that the woman probably could not have expected. Jesus to say, well, actually, the Jews are right, but none of that matters now that I'm here. Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah, and it may say the Messiah in your translation, but the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. I've... I think I understand what the woman at the well to be saying here to Jesus is something of a profession of faith. I think she's saying, okay, I don't understand all of what's happening right now. Remember, Jesus still hasn't revealed to her what the living water is. But she says, and, and, I, and apparently I don't understand the temple question either because I thought I had my bearings about it, but you're obviously from God and I asked you about it and you gave me an answer I could have never anticipated, I could have never expected so here's what I do know. One day, the Messiah is going to come and he will usher us into the fullness of worship, the worship of spirit and truth. One day, you're right, these questions won't matter because the Messiah is going to come. And then Jesus reveals himself to her. The first person that he fully reveals himself to as the Messiah in the book of John, this Samaritan woman, verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And it's at this point in the narrative that if you were a good writer, oh man, oh man, the trumpets would blare, you know, the lighting would be like if you were like a, if it was a movie, the lighting would change, the woman would fall down at Jesus' feet and, and then as we'd be reading, we'd just be taken up by the glories of, of Jesus' revelation to this woman and how she responds. But, but that's not how it reads at all. Verse 27, here come the disciples. Just then his disciples came back. Man, the bucket brigade, right? They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? 
So remember, Jesus sent the disciples into the city to get food. They came back with the food. And when they do, they find Jesus sitting at the well, having a conversation alone with this woman. And that's scandalous. And you can see that it's scandalous because Jesus uses, because uh, John uses this language of marvel. It says, they marveled that he was talking with her. Now this word marvel, throughout the rest of the Gospels, whenever someone marvels at something, it's because they're incredulous. They can't believe what they're seeing. They can't understand what they're hearing. In Matthew chapter 9, there's a, a comment that's made. It says, the people had never seen anything like this take place in all of Israel, and they marveled. So the disciples come back and they say, Jesus, not only in a private conversation with a woman, but with a Samaritan woman. And they are aghast. Their, uh, their sensibilities are offended. They are taken aback. But they don't ask him. They don't ask him. They don't bring it up. Maybe they're, uh, you know, he's the rabbi and they're the disciples and fear of man kind of thing and they don't want to rock the boat. Or maybe they're just going to wait for the woman to leave so that they can bring it up. Either way, they don't bring it up. Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town or into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. A lot of ink has been spilled about what's happening here with this woman. Was she converted? Has she believed or not? On the one hand, she, she leaves her water jar. It's pretty significant. You know, water jars aren't easy to come by, you know? And then remember, she brought the water jar out there specifically to get water. And she's so enamored by what has just happened with Jesus that she leaves it and she runs in the town and she begins to bear witness about Jesus. So that's encouraging, right? Maybe she's saved, right? Everyone who's like on team saved is like, yeah, she's definitely saved. But then as she goes into the town, she says, he told me all that I ever did. Did he do that? And then she says, can this be the Christ? Right? That's not like, you know, when we're looking for somebody to come up before they're baptized and share their testimony, we don't want them to be like, am I saved? Right? Like, could Jesus be the one? So that's not super encouraging. Hard to tell. Uh, I think that she was converted, and I'm going to give you three reasons why, okay? The first reason is actually from a little bit later in the text. Go down to verses 39 through 42. Here we see the result of what, what, what happens with her ministry. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him. That doesn't mean that she was saved because the Lord uses unsaved people to preach the gospel and draw people to himself all the time. So just because people got saved or believed because of what she said doesn't mean anything. But let's keep going. Verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there for two days. So the woman goes into the town. She says, hey, whoa, I think the Messiah is here. Not sure, but could be. Jesus, they go out to Jesus and they say, hey, stay with us for a couple of days, please. And he does. Verse 41, and many more believed because of his word. Here's where it gets interesting. Verse 42, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. I don't want to read too much into this, but it seems to me as I read what the townspeople themselves are saying, it seems like they're kind of filling out the details of what she said when she came back into the town and bore witness to Jesus. It sounds like she came in and said more than can this be the Christ, but more positively that this is Christ, that it is the Savior of the world. And we can tell that because the villagers, the townspeople, they go to her and they say, listen, we heard you, but we weren't so sure we could believe you when you told us these things. And so Jesus comes and he says the same things that you're saying. And so now we believe because of what he said. So maybe her testimony was more informed and more solid and more certain than we might first believe by reading just verse 29. The second reason why I think that she was saved is because theologically, this just seems to be very much the way God does things. Right? He uses the foolish things of the world 
to shame the wise. I mean, if you were writing the Gospel of John, who would you have be your first convert? Who would you have be your first missionary? Who would you send back in the town to preach the Gospel so that tons of people would hear and believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world? Probably Nicodemus, right? Leader of the Jews, Pharisee, well-educated, orthodox, believes in all of the books of the Old Testament, understands that the temple in Jerusalem is the correct temple. You know, on top of all that, he probably was just like tall and good-looking and had a great smile, you know, 6'3", could run for governor if he wanted to, probably a smooth dresser and a clean talker and, you know, politically able and agile, But when Nicodemus comes to Jesus with his half-hearted profession, Jesus says, I know you think you believe in me, but in order to believe in me, you have to be born again. And here we have this woman, a Samaritan, an outcast of the outcasts, uneducated, a woman. Her testimony would not have been accepted into any law court in the ancient world because she was a woman doesn't know the Bible. Theologically, she's all out of whack and she's living in sin. And Jesus uses her. This reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Turn there with me. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Starting in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. So why did God choose you? Why did God save you if you were just so lowly in this world? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world and it does not get any lower or more despised than the woman at the well. Even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why does God do what he does the way that he does it? It's because he knows that we're glory hogs. We want all the glory for ourselves. And he says, you can't have it because I'm God and I get the glory. So I'm going to do things in such a way that you couldn't even get the glory if you tried. So as Jesus' mission is unfolding, doesn't it make sense that he would begin the expansion of the fullness of his ministry through this woman rather than through Nicodemus, the foolish, despised, shameful woman at the well. So that when the people in this town come to believe in Jesus, this woman cannot say, it was because of me. It was because I knew the gospel so well It was because I knew the Bible so well. It was because I had all my theology so worked out. It's because I'm a man. It's because I have power and prestige and community. What can she say when on the last day, as these people come to give a testament to what she did in their lives, what can she say in that moment to take credit? She can say nothing. The only thing that she can do is boast in the Lord and his power and his wisdom. And then the third reason why I think that this woman is saved is because, honestly, it just reminds me of my testimony. You know, I got saved. I didn't know anything about anything. I was walking around with a gun in my pants and crystal meth one day, and the next day, I belonged to the Lord. And nobody had to tell me. I just immediately started going around and telling people about Jesus. It was a bit ridiculous, the way that I would do it and some of the things that I would say. And like this woman, I probably sounded a little silly, right? 
Could this be the Christ? Could this be the Savior of the world? You know, I didn't have all my theological ducks in a row, but I, I knew that I couldn't keep it to myself. I had to go back to where I came from and told all the people that I was lost in sin with. I had to tell them, the people that I sold drugs with and the people that I sold drugs to, my family and my friends, the people who wouldn't open the door to me in the community because they thought I would rob them. I had to go back to all of them and tell them, I have met the Savior of the world. Come and see. And you know, people didn't pay attention to me in the same way they probably didn't really pay any heed to this woman in her word. You know, she comes back in, she's a woman, she's uneducated, she's living in sin. People are like, yeah, 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 yeah. We don't want to hear that from you. I came back to my neighborhood preaching the gospel and people were like, yeah, 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 we don't want to hear that from you. We've, we've heard similar songs and dances be- from you before, Sean. So what, before it was recovery and the 12 steps, this time it's God, but it's just the same thing. Give it a week, give it a month, give it a year, we'll see. And here we see the beauty of the way that God has designed the evangelistic task is we don't have to have all the right answers and we don't have to be eloquent and we don't have to be expertly trained apologists. All we have to do is say, come and see for yourself. All you have to do is invite people into the presence of Jesus. We've already seen this in John's gospel. That's what people have been doing left and right. When, when Jesus comes into contact with uh, his you know, first apostles and he begins to call them to himself, some people are a little hesitant and he says, hey, just follow me, come and see. And then the whole Nathaniel and Philip thing and you know, one is a little hesitant and the other just says, hey, just come and see for yourself. If you're here this morning and you're discouraged in your evangelism, Let me encourage you. You don't have to have all the answers. Actually, you will not ever have all the answers. It doesn't work like that, unless your name is Jesus. And even if it is, if it's Jesus, that still doesn't count, right? Like, all you have to do is say, hey, listen, come and see for yourself. And that can look different for you than it does for someone else. For you, it could be, hey, come and move in with me. You know, you're young and you're single and you're a guy and you're trying to share the gospel with this other guy or this dude who thinks he's a Christian but he's probably not because he's a cultural Christian. You say, hey, just come and like move in with me and I'll show you what it looks like to follow Jesus. Not perfect, but I'll show you. It could be, hey, come and work for me. You know, as a Christian boss, I'm gonna show you what it looks like to use authority well for the good of others rather than to take advantage of others. Come and see, let me show you. It could be just come to church with me. I know we look down on that as a form of evangelism, inviting the people. To, is that the best we can do with our evangelism, inviting, inviting people to church? Well, no, it's not the best we can do, but it's a really good thing we can do. People come into a room like this, they may not be immediately impressed. You know, we're not impressive. You're not impressive. I'm not impressive. Our music isn't impressive. Our, our prayers aren't impressive. Jenny's reading is impressive. <laughs> but the majority of the ladies who come up and read scripture are like terrified to be standing up here in front of a room full of people. And you know, they're just like sweating and gripping the pulpit for dear life and trying to just get through it without mispronouncing too many Hebrew words. And then afterwards, we don't do anything super impressive. We stand around, talk to each other, love each other. You know? But I think if you come in this room, you're going to come into contact with Christ. So sometimes if you don't know what to do or say to someone, you don't know how you can possibly evangelism, just say, hey, I know this is weird. I know this is awkward. You probably don't want to come. Maybe you've been burned by the church before. You're probably not going to love it. But I want you to come to church with me this Sunday. And if they say no, give them time and then ask them again. Be willing to be awkward. Invite people to come and see. Verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. So they're doing what they're supposed to do. He sends them to get food. They got food. They've brought it back. Jesus, you're fully human. Now you're fully God. We've seen that, right? (laughs) Fully God, but fully human as well. And you gotta be hungry. We're looking at you, man. You look emaciated, so eat some of this food. Verse 32, the greatest Jesus juke ever. 
But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Come on, Jesus. Right? You sent us to get food. We got the food. We're bringing the food back to you. We're trying to feed it to you. And you're like, I got other food. Now, just like the woman at the well, the disciples don't understand what he's talking about. Right? The disciples, verse 33, so the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Right? Just like the woman at the well is looking around, she's like, living water, living water, living water. As far as I know, this is the only living water in the area, right? The disciples are like, food, who could have possibly brought him food? They don't understand what he's saying. Then in verse 34, Jesus kindly explains to them. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus says, in the same way that you get hungry, your body needs sustenance. And your hunger is a signal for that. It tells you it's time to eat, time to eat. In our culture, it tells us that too much, but same kind of thing. Jesus says, I have a spiritual hunger. And it's cueing me in that I have a need. And what is my need? It's to do the will of the Father. And he says, whenever that happens, whenever I'm obedient to the will of the Father, whenever I do what he sent me to do, it's like I'm eating food It satisfies my soul. And so even though Jesus is probably physically hungry, he wants to take an opportunity to let his disciples know that spiritually he is well fed. Verse 35. Do not say, excuse me, do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. So here Jesus begins by giving them a phrase that they would have known in an agricultural society, which is, don't you say that, you know, you sow today and then you reap in in four months. The idea here is that you don't sow the seed one day and then come back and and get the corn that same day, right? It takes time. He uses four months. I don't know how other crops work. It could be less. It could be more. But the idea is you sow one day and then you have to wait and watch and tend and care. And then eventually you come back and you get the harvest. And Jesus is saying, I am so satisfied. My soul is feasting because right now it seems like we're planting the seed on one day and harvesting in the very same day. This is amazing. And he says, just look. Look at at what's happening in this town with this woman and what she's done and what the Spirit is doing. Look at the harvest The fields are white. Verse 36. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. What Jesus is saying to his disciples here is it's revolutionary. The sower is the Samaritan woman. The reaper is Jesus and his disciples, right? They're going to enter into all these people getting saved and they're going to minister and they're two days with them and they're doing all this harvest work and they didn't do that sowing. And Jesus says, I want you to understand that you should be rejoicing with this Samaritan woman because you have both done the work to bring about this harvest. He couldn't have said anything more shocking to Jews who understood themselves to be in some kind of full-time ministry trying to reap a harvest for the Lord. Verse 37. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. Pretty simple, right? Typically, the person who goes out and scatters the seed, is that's one person, and then later, four months later, in this case, it's a different person who comes back and harvests. And Jesus says, that's what's happening here. Verse 38. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. You could not have said anything more shocking to a Jew than to say, this Samaritan woman went out and did the sowing and here you are doing the reaping. Jesus wants them to see something very significant here. Jesus wants them to see that the temple question is dissolving before their very eyes. They weren't even there for that conversation. doesn't matter. It's a conversation that everyone is having. Between the Samaritans and the Jews, there is a history 
there are centuries of hostility and conflict. Social, political, religious hostility and conflict. And Jesus says, lift up your eyes and look around at what God the Father is doing. He's eradicating all that by sending me out to bring people in to worship him in spirit and truth. And then you see this unfold throughout the rest of the New Testament. There's some confusion in the church at first, you know. All the questions are not answered easily as to how, you know, Samaritans and Jews, which you can also just expand that and say Gentiles and Jews can coexist and worship God together. There has to be a council in, in Jerusalem, you know, Acts 15, to answer some questions. And Paul has to do a lot of good pastoral work in his letters to various churches, like the church at Rome and the church at Corinth, and in, uh, in order to help them understand how we can both be in the same body and relate to one another in Christ. And you see that in uh, the book of Galatians, there's even a point where Paul has to rebuke Peter because he's not living in light of the reality of what Jesus began all the way back in John chapter 4. But what I want us to see this morning, brothers and sisters, is that what Jesus began in chapter 4, Jesus finished at the cross. Jesus said the hour is coming and is now here. I'm here. I'm doing it. But there's still something left that has to happen. What it is is Jesus had to go to the cross and he had to, in his body, reconcile these two people who were at war with one another. He had to break down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that existed between them and between the Jews and the Gentiles and really the Jews and everybody. He had to bring them together into his body so that there would be peace and unity. He had to receive the hostility of God so that there would no longer be hostility between them. And friends, he accomplished the mission for which the Father sent him. He died and then he rose again. And when he rose again, God was saying to everyone on the earth and to all cosmic powers, yes and amen to the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross. And then he told his disciples, hey, you need to go out and you need to call all nations, not just Jews, but the Samaritans and the everybody else. And you need to call them all in and tell them that they can now worship me in spirit and truth. And you can exist together as one body. And I know that right now, it's a little harder to believe in this promise. I know that it feels like we're kind of coming undone at the seams, at least in the American church, when it comes to unity. Ten years ago, I remember I had a blog that no one read, and I, read, I wrote an article there about how much progress we were making along cultural and economic and ethnic lines in the church in America, and I was blown away by God's grace, and the American church has such a jaded and checkered past, and, and look how much progress we're making, and now it just seems like we are taking so many steps backwards. It seems like our unity is unraveling. But friends, I want to encourage you this morning to look beyond your noses. Look beyond this moment in your own cultural context. Believe the promises of the gospel that Jesus has purchased, that he began in chapter four and that he finished at the end of the gospel of John when he resurrected from the grave. Believe the promise that Jesus will unite. He already has united all peoples together in himself. So if it seems like culturally and ethnically and politically we just can't figure it out in the American church, trust me, it will be figured out. It's already been accomplished on the cross. Trust Jesus. Trust that his Holy Spirit will accomplish these things. Read church history. Recognize that this cultural moment, this problem that we're dealing with right now, this unity issue, is like this big compared to stuff that the church has dealt with for the last 2,000 years. So look back and look at God's grace and the way he's brought us through. And then look forward and trust that Jesus will do what he's doing here well into the future, and he will finish it, and then he will call us all home to be with him and to rejoice together in the harvest that he has accomplished for us. Let's pray.
Father, your word has satisfied our souls this morning. We were hungrier and thirstier than we knew when we came into this room. But your spirit has welled up within us. And your word has fed us and we feel satisfied. And if there's anyone in this room, Lord, who is not satisfied, God, we pray that the things that they have seen and heard today will be impressed upon their hearts. Even as they leave this building, as they lay their heads down at night and think about life and death. God, we pray that you would use what has happened in this building this morning and what will happen in this building to draw even more men and women to yourself. We pray that we will rejoice with everyone in this room together in heaven. May it be so because of your son. In his name we pray, amen.